der Triathlon Show 314. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Stefan van der Svart. Stefan's area of expertise spans both exercise science and physiology as well as data science, so he can work at uh, the intersection of those different areas, which is something we'll go into a little bit. But uh, the, fir- the main thing we'll discuss is uh, one of Stefan's most recent papers, which is uh, definitely uh, on the physiology side of things. It's called Under the Hood, Skeletal Muscle Determinants of Endurance Performance. So we'll go into what these skeletal muscle determinants of endurance performance really are. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water or on the bike, a Roka wetsuit or trisuit might be for you. Or if you just want to have a more comfortable, functional and stylish pair of eyeglasses, then look to their range of eyewear. Today I want to highlight Roka's Sim Shorts, which are neoprene shorts that add buoyancy in the pool. This has several benefits in that it allows you to train the specific body position of swimming in a wetsuit without having to actually bring the wetsuit to the pool. It allows you to learn and understand good body positioning, if that's something that you struggle with, and it can help you add more swimming volume, in particular when your legs are tired and sinky from bike and run training. And it can help you help you better work on other points for improvement in your stroke than just body position, uh, such as uh, your stroke mechanics, when the, the shorts can take care of part of the body position problems for you. They're brilliant quality shorts, they have great buoyancy, are extremely durable, so I can highly recommend them. Visit roca.com for 20% off your order. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home, allowing you to improve your technique, work on power and stamina, and save time and stay consistent. Consistency is the most important thing in training, but sometimes it's tough to find the time to get to the pool, so to have a time-efficient way to complement your pool and open water swimming at home is invaluable. In addition, you can use it to do things like swim, bike, brick workouts and to work on perfect core activation and streamline with the help of the built-in instability element of the swim bench. The Zen 8 Swim Trainer does not take up a lot of space. It is very affordable. It's more or less like, the pair of, uh, like a pair of good running shoes. And it's even more affordable with the 20% discount code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with uh, Stefan van der Svart. Welcome to that triathlon show, Stefan. How are you doing this morning? Thank you. Uh, I'm doing uh, very fine. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's an honor to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, why don't you start by uh, giving the audience an introduction to yourself, who you are, and uh, yeah, your background in endurance sports and uh, and in science. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm Stefan de Zwaard. Uh, I currently work as an assistant professor at the Free University in uh, Amsterdam. And I'm also working as a data scientist uh, at the Leiden Institute of uh, Advanced Computer Science. Maybe go a little bit back before, like how did you end up there? <laughs> um, so, so first, when I was, I think it was like 16, 17 years old, I was visiting one of the testing sessions of the former Jumbo Visma speed skating. So the team of Jak Ori. And I saw all this incredible performance. And I was really amazed by this. Like, I want to know how could they uh, achieve such a, such a good performance? 
So that's why I studied human movement sciences and, and pursued a PhD in that as well. Um, so I did that also at the, the free university, uh, mainly to discover like how can you explain differences in performance by making a whole physiological profile. So measuring a lot of different things, including a lot of skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle uh, determinants to figure out what distinguishes yeah, a really good endurance athlete and also a really good sprint athlete. But for now, of course, we're mostly focused on the endurance part. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's what I really dived into. And later on, I got more into the data science part because I, yeah, I figured out that there's so much complexity. There's so many interactions between all these physiological determinants, of course, much more. Uh, so that's why I developed myself a little bit into uh, data science. Uh, so learning a lot of different analyses and uh, now I'm currently actually forming a bridge between the two fields and uh, yeah, trying to apply data science to learn more about uh, physiology. And how do you do that? Is that in your academic role or is it consulting with uh, federations or teams and or what does that look like for you? It's a little bit of both. Uh, so academically, for sure. Um, but also, uh, yeah, we have contact with a lot of uh, national teams. So, for instance, the Umofisma Cycling, Speed Skating, but also uh, the elite basketball players, elite volleyball players. Um, and what we do is yeah, we do a lot of analysis with the, the data they collect. Uh, so tracking and uh, monitoring throughout the seasons and see how, for instance, training characteristics uh, relate to their performance or injury. Uh, so there are things that we uh, that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is a fascinating. And uh, I'm sure that we will see lots of interesting work uh, from that in the not too distant future. Uh, 40 days into you, uh, you have a paper fairly recently published that, that I read that was very interesting. And that is the main topic for today, which was on the skeletal muscle determinants of endurance performance, where you went through a bunch of well different skeletal muscle determinants of endurance performance and also did a bit of a meta analysis. So quantifying them. Uh, so yeah. uh, can we, before we get into that, uh, first, uh, if you can give a brief summary of the what we might call the whole body determinants yeah. of endurance performance. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I think back in the days uh, was uh, Michael uh, Joyner and uh, Coyle. They, they made a very nice overview of what, what, are the, what is the physiology of champions. And there, of course, the view to max. Uh, so the maximal oxygen uptake, uh, the lactate threshold, so the first lactate threshold. And uh, the efficiency, gross efficiency or economy were mentioned as uh, critical whole body determinants. And um, the, yeah, so the, the lactate threshold uh, combined with the VO2 max uh, kind of explain what, what VO2 you can obtain during, uh, well, during uh, an endurance uh, performance part. So these three determinants are, uh, I think, the, the most prominent there. They made a whole schematic out of that. And if you look a little bit more into that, I think uh, Haugen uh, made a good summary of that. What is the upper limits for VO2max, for instance? Uh, then you can see that, yeah, like rowers, the really, uh, of course, the really physically uh, large uh, males and females, they, they tend to, to obtain the highest absolute VO2max. So it's about seven or seven and a half liters per minute, which is, yeah, it's insane how, how much that is. Uh, I think ventilation is always a problem there as well. And um, if you go uh, relatively, then it's cross-country skiers, cyclists uh, that, that tend to uh, achieve very high values between 80 and 90 uh, milliliters per kilogram. So, yeah. Mm. 
Um, one interesting question there. Uh, why do you think that runners don't achieve high relative VO2 max? Because they are usually very light. So, so you'd think that it would be fairly easy for them to achieve a high relative VO2 max, but might that be related to their lower training volume? Or do you have any theories or uh, knowledge about that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think they they might as well be, be in the same ballpark, but maybe it's just not the, the top upper limits that they achieve. So maybe they're like 70 high or up to 80. So I think if you if you compare the general field uh, between uh, between all these disciplines, and may, maybe the the difference isn't that much, but maybe mostly in the upper uh, exceptions. And maybe I, I'm not sure. I I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't know if this relates to training volume because I think runners they make a lot of kilometers every week, so um, hmm. could be related to the distribution. But uh, we may we may get a little bit more into that later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could, perhaps it could also be related to how important economy is in running, sure. which it's not in cycling. So, so VO two max might not be as important in running as as it is in, in for example, cycling. Yeah, yeah, it could definitely be. Uh, but then it's more important. Yeah. But then again, cross-country skiing economy is very important there. So, uh, sure, yeah. Um, but that, that's a bit of a side point. One, one other thing I wanted to comment on there is when you mentioned that the the VO two max and the lactate threshold combine to uh, to determine the VO two, the oxygen uptake that you can maintain during a performance. Yeah. Just for listeners that might not quite follow, it means basically that well, one marathoner might be able to actually run at let's say. 88% of VO2 max, even 90% perhaps uh, for, for an entire marathon and another at only 80%. And then uh, even if they have very similar VO2 maxes, then of course, the one that can maintain the higher percentage of VO2 max is going to to win, assuming they also have similar economies, of course. Uh, but that's where why we have these three different determinants. They're all important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I think there, so, you know, uh, to add, I think that the combination of the three is also very difficult to achieve. So so what we see, if, if you look at all three determinants at once, there are not many athletes that excel at all three uh, at the same time. So that is, I think that's also where it becomes challenging, like having a high view to max and a high economy or efficiency and a high uh, lactate threshold. That isn't that isn't yeah. seen much. Uh, I know that there's one study about the multiple tour, uh, tour uh, winner or Grand Tour winner. Uh, we all probably know who that is, but uh, he, w- he was able to 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 actually have a high efficiency, a high feed to max, and a fairly high uh, lactate threshold at the same time. Yeah, yeah, which may yeah. explain uh, this performance. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I think probably someone like Eliud Kipchoge is another one that would be an an, an outlier who who has high values in all of those. Yeah, yeah, I would assume that too. Yeah. Um, so, so now if we go down one level from the, these whole body determinants to the skeletal muscle determinants that you covered in the paper, can you discuss which ones they are and, and how important are each of them? So yeah, we can just take one at a time. Uh, I don't know if you want to take them in a particular order. Uh, I have, you maybe have the questions in front of you here where I have them in particular order, but you can change the order as well if you want to. Oh no, that's fine. Yeah, so so maybe it's good to, to tell a little bit of how uh, how we determine this this relative importance. So you mentioned the meta analysis uh, yep. before. Uh, so actually, we dived into the literature, looking at like all these articles uh, related to endurance performance and these skeletal, uh, skeletal muscle determinants, but also the the whole body determinants. So we ended up with about twenty nine hundred articles and filled that down to fifty four. 
I think. And out of all those articles, we looked at the relationship between uh, yeah, these skeletal muscle determinants and the performance determinants. Um, yeah, first the, the fiber type, which of course uh, that's that's one one thing that comes to mind very quickly. Uh, I, I must say uh, that is of course a, a very important one. So if you look at their uh, the effect sizes that this uh, fiber type has on all these, uh, so on the lactate threshold, fetal max, and endurance performance, it's all uh, large effects, meaning it's it's very important to explain differences in the in these uh, uh, in, in performance. Um, if you look at what they achieve, so a typical endurance athlete will, will have like 70-80% of uh, type 1 fibers uh, in their muscle. Well, mostly it has been reported uh, the fast lateralis muscle. So, so thinking of that, then, then you could expect like 70-80%. But we have, we have observed also values uh, much higher, like in the 90s as well. So that also happens. So, so a higher proportion of slow twitch fiber or type one fiber would uh, have a positive effect on uh, on all of the parameters uh, on VO2 max and lactate threshold and economy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they're, they're typically more more oxidative, so so that helps. Uh, and also uh, with relate with respect to to efficiency, if you look at the the, um, the movement velocities uh, for cycling, for instance, also for running. It's uh, if you look at that that frequency, then they are also more efficient than type two fibers. So there's also a relation mm. there with uh, with efficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and for for listeners that are interested, I recently interviewed Phil Bellinger on muscle fiber typology and yeah. uh, some interesting research that he has done. So so you can I'll link to that in the show notes. So so you can go and and listen to that. Uh, the next one is muscle fiber cross sectional area. Yeah. Yeah, and that is an interesting one because, uh, well, in theory, you would want uh, to have larger fibers because they can produce more power. Uh, and if you have this combined with these, uh, well, slow slope type uh, fibers, uh, type one fibers, then of course you can sustain for a long time and produce a lot of power, which, well, theoretically gives you a high steady state, uh, which is of course what you want for the long uh, for the long run. Uh, but if you look at the data, that we see actually some negative uh, uh, negative results or negative relationship that this uh, fiber cross-section area has. So on endurance performance and on the electrolyte threshold, it's actually uh, impairing the uh, these performance determinants. So that is that is quite interesting. Um, like like how can this be? Um, and yeah, we we have an idea why this is. So uh, so this is already uh, well. Back in the days, uh, one of my supervisors, he did a lot of animal studies. Um, and what he did is he, he looked at the, the fiber cross-section area of all these uh, animals, so from frogs to humans, mice, uh, rabbits, uh, uh, shrinks as well. And um, uh, they, they actually saw that uh, the, the animals with the larger cross-section area who were able to produce a lot of power, of course, uh, they had low oxidative capacity. And the ones having very small fibers, they had a really high oxidative capacity. And this was kind of tightly regulated. So if you would if you would draw it, it's kind of an, an hyperbola. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's very strictly uh, regulated. And the question now is, uh, if you are an athlete, uh, do you have to deal with this? So uh, yeah, you either go for the oxidative capacity or you go for, for larger fiber size. 
Um, and then as, as an endurance athlete, yeah, maybe you want to focus more on the oxidative capacity instead. But on the other hand, what if you can get a little bit above this curve and maybe be, uh, still have the same oxidative capacity, but a larger fiber size? And that helps, of course, to produce more steady state power. So that is, I think that is very interesting to see, like, how can this help you and, and what athletes are able to achieve this? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, what do you think in terms of strength training for endurance athletes here? Uh, this is something that we have talked about quite a bit in previous episodes. But uh, generally speaking, uh, would, would you say that cr cross-sectional area doesn't increase too much in endurance athletes that do strength training just because they also do so much endurance training? So it's more you can get the uh, uh, neurological adaptations of strength training and get stronger, but you don't necessarily see that cross-sectional area increasing or or have you seen some other uh conflicting evidence i guess or some or do you have any, uh, some some other information than, than than that that actually you can as an endurance athlete also increase your cross-sectional area through strength training uh that, yeah that's a very good question so definitely the neurological adaptations are favorable uh, aside from the, uh, the change in uh, cross-sectional area but also cross-sectional area uh may uh may increase but then of course it's always a balance with, with how much endurance training you do uh there are some some literature reporting uh larger type one fibers actually compared to type two fibers in professional cyclists so mm -hmm. i think in that sense there is there is some room uh there uh but i think it also um depends a little bit on the oxygen supply and i, I may add a little bit about that later on but uh Or, or I can dive right into it. It depends on what you want. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel feel free to dive right into it and uh, yeah, transition into that. Okay. Yeah. So so um, behind this negative effect of the cross-sectional area, you can think of if you have very large muscle fiber and the oxygen needs to go in, you have a larger diffusion distance, and that is of course not not very helpful if you want to provide all the energy with oxygen. Um, so you can of course. Uh, look at the other side of the spectrum and say, okay, what if I increase my oxygen supply? And that can be done by having more capillaries, for instance. Uh, then maybe the diffusion distance isn't that much of a problem. Or also, uh, on top of the uh, capillarization, you also have the myoglobin who transports the oxygen within the muscle fiber. And that actually helps to, to get the oxygen towards the mitochondria, uh, who, of course, need this oxygen to create this energy. Um, so I think these two, uh, the combination of this myoglobin and capillarization within the muscle tissue is very important to, to actually uh, allow uh, someone to, to still have larger muscle fibers while not uh, negatively infecting the, the oxidative capacity that they have. And this is actually what we saw. So we had this, uh, this study in 2018 um, where we looked as, at all these critical determinants and that, there we saw that the, the cyclists that were able to get above this curve. So actually they were able to, to migrate a little bit upwards, uh, which is already uh, surprising and very interesting uh, because if anyone could, you of course expect it uh, from elite cyclists, but they actually showed that. But also the looking at the group, then the ones who got uh, higher up upwards from the curve uh, were also the ones who had uh, better capillarization. So in that sense, that actually supports uh, this theoretical uh, yeah, argumentation of why this 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 work. Yeah. Yeah, 
And uh, by the way, with regard to the the effect sizes, we didn't mention that oh, what yes. were the effect sizes for the cross-sectional area and now capillarization uh, and myoglobin. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, the effect sizes of the cross-sectional area were uh, only small or moderate, uh, but then mostly negative. Um, if you look at capillarization, there the effects are mostly large. So it's it's uh, yeah quite. Uh, Quite large, which you would expect uh, also. Uh, so if you look at, at capillarization, they usually typically you would find like three or four around the fiber. But if you go into the like the real endurance athletes, so professional cyclists, they can have like uh, five to eight. Uh, and there's even some sample examples. For instance, we measured the Olympic track cyclist, and he got like nine plus. Uh, yeah, uh, capillarizations around a fiber, which of course you can imagine that that's well way beneficial. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's definitely there, and the, the literature is actually there is some literature there, but for the myoglobin, that's much more difficult. So there isn't much literature on on myoglobin out there, uh, at least looking at these relationship with uh, with PO2 max, for instance, or endurance performance or uh, lactate threshold. Uh, so that was much more difficult. Uh, so definitely some something to to study more uh, in in the future. Um, mm. But the effect sizes there were uh, mostly moderate. But I have to yeah. say that this is only a couple of studies. Uh, yeah. So you have to take that into account. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of quite quite a bit of uncertainty there. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and then the final two determinants. Uh, first, we have mitochondrial oxidative capacity. Yeah. So if you can cover that. Sure, yeah. So mitochondrial oxidative capacity, there are, of course, a lot of mitochondrial markers that you can assess. So uh, mostly uh, yeah, we assess uh, enzyme activity. So this could be uh, citrate synthase or uh, uh, cytochrome C uh, oxidase or uh, succinate uh, dehydrogenase, or SDH activities. Uh, that are the typical markers that are measured there. Uh, but you can also, of course, look at the actual respiration uh, within the muscle fiber. And there, it's mostly from permeabilized uh, fibers, which is, yeah, it's a little bit different than doing histochemical analysis. Um, but uh, we, we've done a lot of research with the SDH activity. And there we saw that uh, over a group so it's it's really strongly related to VO2 max. So actually, we made a prediction. If you take a, a muscle biopsy sample from your facet lateralis and would ex extrapolate that to your whole body, uh, so say, okay, let's say this activity can be extrapolated, uh, then the theoretical VO2 max, uh, and, and we had that. And on the other end, we had actually a cycling VO2 max of uh, all these participants. There were like 60, 60 plus in total. So from chronic heart failure patients up to elite cyclists, VO2 max of below 10 to 80. Uh, and there you could see that actually over all the groups, uh, the actual VO2 max was 90% theoretical one. Uh, and this was similar for all the groups. So for the chronic heart failure patients, for yeah, regular controls and for uh, these elite cyclists. And that is actually what is, of course, uh, being mentioned in literature a lot. So VO2 max tends to be limited by this oxygen supply. So there's a little bit room for improvement. Um, but the, the room for improvement isn't that much. So uh, it's only 10%. Um, 
which is which is I think it's interesting. Uh, also with these chronic heart failure patients, I think they just throw out the mitochondria at some point because these were stable. So if you look at acute, it may be different. But um, but increasing the oxygen supply is then essential to improve the V2 max, uh, which is what's, what we commonly report in literature as well. Yeah, that, that is extremely, extremely interesting. And uh, yeah, of course, there are ma- many components increasing the oxygen supply as well, I, not just the ones we talked about here, but also yeah. just your uh, the cardiovascular system. Uh, so, uh, so so there's that too. Definitely. As well, but yeah. But 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 regardless, it's it's very interesting to see that that you can well first of all that you could even predict just based on the mitochondrial oxidative capacity with like get, get that sort of strong correlation that, that just shows how important they are. Um, so uh, and then finally we have uh, muscle glycogen storage. Yeah, uh, yeah. We also have the, the physiological cross section area. By the way, I forgot to mention that. But that's Phys- physiological. Yeah. yeah, so this is measured uh, non-invasively using uh, or MRI or uh, 3D ultrasound. Uh, so it's it's actually the cross-sectional area of the entire muscle. Uh, so people, okay. people are born with a different number of muscle fibers. Uh, so, that, well, uh, the idea is that you cannot change that that much, or at least that's the consensus uh, today. Um, but also there we see similar similar uh, observations as we saw for the fiber cross-sectional area. So negative relationship uh, with, uh, mm. with VTMAX, for instance. Yeah. And the glycogen, yeah. So so typically endurance athletes have uh, more glycogen in their muscles, uh, but also resynthesize this glycogen faster. Uh, so in that sense, of course, that's really helpful, especially for the uh, long bouts, uh, long endurance uh, events. So uh, so that's definitely something to uh, to consider. Yeah. Yeah, and and the uh, the effect sizes for for muscle glycogen and also I think we we didn't mention the mitochondrial oxidative capacity effect size. What were they? Yeah, the the oxidative capacity uh, was uh, large, uh, particularly for the lactate threshold and the the VO2 max, and uh, for the endurance performance, it's it's uh, moderate, uh, which is maybe a little bit lower than you would expect, but uh, but of course it's still interacting with all the others, and I think that is also. Yeah. Um, important to measure to to mention, like how do all of these uh, interact? Uh, that's also what we what we analyzed. So, uh, for instance, the performance view two we discussed in the beginning. Uh, if you uh, would explain this by all these different skeletal muscle determinants, then we could see that uh, a high oxidative capacity, a small pro- uh, physiological cross-sectional area, and a high capillarization is important. So there, you actually see the same determinants from this uh, hyperbola we discussed. So a high oxidative capacity is what you want. Uh, you don't want to have well, too large fiber cross-sectional area, but in this case, it's a physiological cross-sectional area, similar. Uh, and maybe the capillarization can, can be like a, a switch between the two to, to actually, uh, or like an intermediate to, to, to improve both. So the, the PCSA had a negative relationship with the performance view two, and the other two had a positive relation. So that's yeah. Uh, yeah something to target maybe. And uh, yeah, in your uh, publication, you had a, a very nice figure with lots of arrows going everywhere at first glance. But then when you look look a bit closer, it, it is actually a very nice illustration of how the interactions between these different determinants. So so listeners can can go and have a look at that. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. 
then maybe we can move on to discussing a few different types of training and how they might impact either the whole body determinants or uh, the specific skeletal muscle determinants of endurance performance. And of course, here we have to kind of be very clear that not all of this has necessarily been studied and maybe, well, some of it may, may have been studied, but you haven't specifically done the study. So, so part of this is more of a free discussion and a bit of speculation. Uh, so take it for what it is. But, but first, if we discuss and we use the kind of the scientific intensity domains of moderate, heavy and severe intensity domain training. Yeah. Uh, so below LT1, between LT1 and LT2, and above LT2. Uh, if, if we start by, if you train in the moderate uh, domain, below LT1 or VT1, uh, what sort of changes would you expect to see there on, on these different determinants? Um, yeah, so the yeah the moderate intensity training, uh, especially training that a lot of uh, volume, uh, yeah, that, that increases uh, fear to max. So if you look at the... Yeah, uh, behind the scenes, then actually uh, your your calcium uh, pathway is going up, so you make a lot of contractions, uh, and that uh, increases uh, PGC one alpha. So this is kind of technical, but in that leads to mitochondrial biogenesis or biosynthesis. Uh, so in in that sense, uh, it helps to uh, yeah to improve the pH max uh, there. Uh, what's also happening is uh, more central that that stroke volume uh, increases, which is uh, uh, low intensity training. So um, I think it's back in the days, but they they analyzed uh, the training volume uh, that uh, that athletes uh, had, and also the the improvement in in uh, cardiac volume, and that was that was strongly related there. Um, so, so in that sense, uh, you both get the peripheral and the, the central adaptations there. Uh, but there's also literature out there, uh, mostly by Jibala and others, um, saying that, yeah, you can also do this high-intensity training and that maybe you're more effective even than uh, doing this moderate continuous uh, training. Um, so, so it can either be that you, you improve more or that you need less uh, effective time uh, of training to, to achieve similar uh, adaptations. Um, and that is, yeah, um, so, so that is mostly, uh, um, yeah, so should I say that? Uh, mostly an improvement in, in SDH activity also, but also the, the capillarization. So if you look at capillarization, the precursor of that is FEDGEF. Uh, going up that's what you actually those those things is what you see also uh, with high intensity training and the the oxidative capacity going up for instance by this sdh activity uh, that can be related to um, yeah to ampk going up uh, so it's it's more the energy status of the of the muscle uh, so you have a, a lower energy status and that uh, stimulates this uh, mitochondrial bio biosynthesis as well um, there is also there is also a lot of literature or recent literature looking into this and saying, hey, this high intensity training it's it's nice of course and it can lead to to benefits, but maybe there's also a, like an upper limit for this. Uh, so this has first been studied in recreational uh, uh, persons, saying after like what was it, fourteen sessions uh, of high intensity training that. Uh, you could see still some improvements in this uh, mitochondrial uh, enzyme activity, so cyclic synthase. But if you look at the actual respiration, it was lower. So 
you lose some of the effectiveness of this. So even even though you have more biogenesis, uh, it still isn't as effective. And uh, the debate now is going on, like, like how can this be, and and what what may explain this? Uh, like too much of of having too much high intensity is, uh, and what is then too much? Uh, and similar things have been observed also in uh, in well trained athletes recently uh, by Cardinal uh, at all. So so yeah. These are very interesting things, and and of course I I didn't do all these studies, but it's it's interesting to see like like fundamentally what's going on under the hood, and 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 what will uh, yeah stimulate these adaptations, and also yeah can we understand why this is? And if you look at the the high intensity, it's def I think it's definitely good to to uh, to put some high intensity exercise in um, and this is for instance looking mostly looking at the oxidative uh, supply uh, so there's a very nice study by Vogt uh, who actually did uh, four groups uh, two groups they trained very low uh, so low in intensity and two groups uh, trained high in intensity so we're talking about above four millimole uh, uh, of uh, lactate blood lactate uh, and on top of that, they didn't only do these high or moderate intensity exercise, but also added a hypoxic stimulus. Uh, so uh, either they trained just low or they trained at, I think it was like 3,000 meters, something more. Um, and the interesting thing there is that they saw the, the myoglobin levels, uh, the mRNA of the myoglobin levels only going up in the high intensity combined with the hypoxia. Uh, so you really need a specific stimulus to to get that, and all the other groups didn't. Um, while uh, also for the FEGF, which was a precursor for this capillarization, that showed a similar uh, result there. So it's the combination of high intensity exercise, uh, but also with hypoxia. And you can imagine if you uh, exercise in in a hypoxic environment, it's even more difficult to get the oxygen in. So you actually you're making it the Exercise-induced hypoxia, you, you actually make that even more. Um, so, so it's it's a very strong stimulus, uh, you must say. But that's uh, at least for the oxygen supply, it seems that that is uh, yeah, that is definitely something to look to look into. Um, so, so some high intensity uh, the exercise uh, there, but. Uh, keeping in mind that that you don't want the negative uh, or the impairment of the uh, the mitochondrial oxidative capacity, which maybe yeah. yeah. So so the, it it is a balance and uh, it's 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 difficult, but uh, I think there the the polarized training is of course also so so exercising like mostly uh, below the first lactate threshold, so about eighty percent, and then uh, like fifteen twenty percent above these uh, four millimoles of the, the second lactate threshold. So I think some of the adaptations may be related to this high intensity part, uh, while also the, the moderate intensity uh, part uh, that may be uh, related to the stroke volume I mentioned before. Uh, of course, we're not sure, but that, that can be uh, can be the case. Uh, but also the, the biogenesis of mitochondria that you get from the repetitive movement that you, that you do, especially with the prolonged exercise bouts. Yeah, yeah. The, there's a lot of interesting things. There are super interesting things to to unpack. Uh, well, the, the first thing that I have to ask is uh, with the, that study with uh, 
the high intensity and hypoxia at altitude being the one that led to myoglobin improvements. Yeah. Since that is a local adaptation at the muscle level, could you achieve something similar with uh, blood flow restricted training? Uh, I mean, I, this is speculation, of course, because I don't think something like that has been studied. But what do you think? Yeah, I haven't seen the, uh, such studies uh, out there yet as well. But yeah, of course, you can imagine that uh, instead of reducing the oxygen in the air, you're you're kind of occluding uh, the blood flow and, and inducing a similar environment. Uh, so in that sense, uh, yeah, you, you could expect also the, the oxygen pressure in the muscle to go down. Um, but of course, there's also a lot of other things going on. So of course, your your waste products, uh, so to say, uh, yeah, as the blood flow is, is stopped, you're not uh, removing them. So it may actually be uh, be a more strenuous uh, stimulus in that sense. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's it's yeah. definitely worth yeah. uh, taking a look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the other thing I wanted to ask there is when you talked about how uh, at past a certain amount of high intensity training you start to see these kind of um, impairments in the mitochondrial respiratory capacity uh, i i remember seeing that study in recreational athletes that you mentioned but i did you say there that they've now done an, uh, a study as well in in elite athletes or well-trained yeah, well-trained yeah i think it was 60 plus uh, few to max uh, that they studied that in I think that was by Cardinal. Uh, I can I can reference the the paper for you to yeah. add to the show notes. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's a Swedish group from Auto Karolinska Institute. That, uh, that but yeah, that, that's super interesting. So I'll definitely want to go and have a have a look at that. But but yeah, I don't think it's something that uh, a lot of people has seen or heard of. So I've, uh, it it's good that you you mentioned that and uh, yeah, the potential cost of. Uh, past a certain amount of high intensity training you actually don't you, you start to see potential impairments even or at least not improvements yeah um and and then uh, what, what was the yeah and, and then you mentioned the the sort of the, the low intensity and the high intensity what about uh training in the heavy domain between uh, the first and second threshold how would that potentially influence these different determinants yeah, so then you're talking mostly about threshold training. Uh, um, and then, of course, so everything leads to improvement uh, when you start as an untrained uh, uh, person. Uh, but the, the thing is, of course, what is more effective in a sense? And um, yeah, so the polarized training I was just referring to, so so not doing so much in this domain compared to doing a lot of threshold training, uh, it gives better adaptation, so better improvement in uh, this is mostly done on uh, whole body determinants or uh, endurance performance. Uh, so not so much in skeletal muscle determinants. Uh, there's not much out there yet. Um, but threshold training is, is there was I think there was recently a meta-analysis showing that it, it has a moderately uh, moderate effect size of, of being less uh, favorable compared to this polarized training. Um, yeah. So, so in that so sense, I, it, it, Michael, Michael, Michael Rosenblatt yeah. was actually a guest on the, yeah. on the podcast. Exactly. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his work uh, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So, but he, he only included four studies. So that means that also there, there's there's not much uh, literature yet. Uh, there is more literature coming up, or at least uh, coming out, of course, these uh, uh, these days. So, so I'm definitely curious. Uh, uh, yeah, to see to see the skeletal muscle determines how they adapt uh, following polarized training because uh, that's very interesting. But 
yeah, not so much is is, is out there yet. Uh, I think. Mm. And in in an applied sense, then, uh, be, because you work with with athletes, and and athletes do do threshold training, especially if we're talking, for example. Um, cyclists and uh, long distance runners and triathletes uh, what do you see is the role of that in terms of um what what are you, what are we trying to achieve with that is it is it just race specificity and and in that if that is the case or whatever is the case when do you think is a good time to include that and and for how long would you include that if, if you were to just put on a coach's hat for a while yeah yeah, good question. I definitely think that, that race specific performance uh, that that's yeah that that's achieved with this threshold training. So it's definitely preparing for a match. It's 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 good to do. But I think yeah, looking at the intensity distribution, like if you do most of your training in that zone, then that may not be as beneficial as shifting it more to to the to the extremes. But but still, there's a place, of course, for for doing these uh, these type of sessions. I. I definitely think that. So it's yeah, we shouldn't see it more black and white in that sense. It's definitely important. But the question is like, how much of this do you want? And then then probably you want it, but not as much. And probably just before co- competition, it's uh, it's good to do. Of course, considering tapering and everything. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, one more question on on this same uh, along the same line is uh, when we're talking about the high intensity training. Do you are you aware of any uh, work comparing the different types of intensity training? For example, comparing sprint interval training with more traditional VO two max intervals, if you want to call them that, like slightly longer intervals in the one to five minute range. Uh, what what would you say about the different types of training we can do in in the severe domain and how that might impact things? Yeah, yeah, uh, good one. So so mostly the, the sprint interval training, repeated sprint training there in this extreme domain. It's very important, and we yeah we already saw uh, a long time ago that this improves view to max. Uh, so so that is of course always good. Uh, interestingly, in the same uh, yeah same line as, as as I discussed with the capillarization, uh, if you would add an hypoxic stimulus to doing these uh, uh, repeated sprints, uh, then we see that there's actually uh, a beneficial effect of that. So. Performing these repeated sprints in hypoxia actually improves view to max slightly more and also the repeated sprint ability. So in that sense, uh, also there adding this additional stimulus may uh, may facilitate uh, these adaptations uh, in a bit more detail. So uh, Brochery, who was also a co-author of this paper, uh, he uh, did a nice meta-analysis on that. Yeah. So, so definitely something to look into. Uh, of course, you need to to consider that uh, the recovery of these sessions uh, takes a little bit longer, um, and may yeah maybe that also relates to the the, the strength of such a polarized training uh, regime. Like, if you do these high intensity trainings, of course you need to to uh, to recover from that, and and having this this large bulk of, of low intensity training, of course, yeah, that that helps uh, in that sense. Um, we actually did a did a study uh, looking at this repeated sprint uh, training in elite hockey players. Uh, so actually, they did the combination of of these sprints, but also in hypoxia. Uh, and the group who did it in hypoxia and the group who did it in normal hypoxia, so just at sea level. Um, and there we saw that the, the the best improvements in mitochondrial oxidative capacity were with the group doing these sprints 
in uh, in hypoxia, which was already after two weeks. So it's quite fast. They were improving by 35%. So it's not a small improvement, especially for elite hockey players. Uh, but the thing is that you need to keep in mind is that the uh, they this improvement of 35%, which was right after the, the two weeks of altitude training, uh, if you look three weeks later on, uh, then only 12% left. So so you also lose it quickly. So I think timing in that sense, this was an altitude training camp. Um, I think they are really beneficial, but the timing you should definitely consider like what, when would you do this? And uh, yeah, that's, that's very important. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and uh, well, on this topic, do you have anything else to add? Because then, uh, yeah, unless th- then we're going to switch into some other different types of questions, including data science and and so on. But do you have anything else you want to add on on this topic or this uh, this uh, publication and review that you did? Uh, maybe a little bit on the last, but it's uh, it's a, it's a case study that's been done by Yakori y- uh, his group. Uh, actually, the, the, this is kind of interesting because they, they also looked at, at this polarized training, uh, but then in terms of rating of perceived exertion. Uh, so uh, how, how hard was your training session? And they, they looked at that uh, four weeks before testing. And this is not in an endurance group, but in a speed skating group, uh, or at least a speed skating uh, NS1. So it's, it's a case study. Uh, but uh, a 1500 meter, of course, also requires a lot of uh, endurance uh, background. Um, and what they what they saw there is actually that training at uh, an RPE of two or three was beneficial, had a positive uh, relationship. With, uh, in this case, it was uh, mean wing gate power, uh, whereas uh, an RPE of four or five. So that reflects more or less the, the threshold uh, zone uh so between two and, and four millimolars uh of blood lactate uh that was negatively related and then an rp of seven there was a tendency to uh, uh to be beneficial again so there also you see and of course it's it's uh only only ns1 uh although this was an olympic uh champion in speed skating um but it's interesting to see that it's not only the the long endurance events but also uh, only a 1500 meter uh, speed skating so that's i think that's interesting to see that um yeah it uh, it has a wide uh, applicability in that sense yeah that, that is super interesting uh really really interesting i wonder if the the athlete phenotype also plays in there because that's kind of sure general kind of co- coaching wisdom uh that athletes that are more uh, fast twitch dominant uh, at least to the eye they tend to do well with doing their easy training really really easy at an rp of two whereas athletes that are more diesel engines they they can do their easy training at more of an rp of four even five around that lt1 uh, so so that it might have something to do with that as well yeah yeah that's definitely something to look into the the individual component and that uh, because of course this is ns1 but it can be completely different from uh, from someone else so that's Something yep. that that needs uh, a lot of new uh, studies, I would say. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think it's anyway. It's it's yeah, just uh, a really nice example that you really don't need to to do the easy training hard to to see great improvements. Yeah, it's super cool. So uh, let's uh, discuss your work in the field of data science a little bit. So so can you just explain a little bit 
more about the different projects that you uh, might have going on and and also generally what do you think the current state of data science endurance sports is at the moment yeah yeah sure uh, so yeah what what we typically look at is uh, is historic data of of, uh, of training uh, so uh, for instance the the example uh, i just mentioned that is actually logging the training sessions uh, very meticulously and then seeing how that relates to performance in this sense or testing and that's what we do a lot so so we uh, actually worked together collaborated with the uh, the volleyball uh, federation uh, in the netherlands and uh, with with the uh, the male team there so we actually had a whole entire international season looking at all the training sessions they did and actually they um uh, they they measured their uh, their jumping uh, uh, heights and also number of jumps with a with a small accelerometer, uh, so you could actually see all the impact of this, um, and and comparing that to to injury. So when uh, in what spot loading is too much uh, in order to get overload injuries. Uh, so we uh, we made a model out of that. So on the one hand you have all these predictors looking at all these different types of. Of, of training, like uh, does it matter how high you jump, or does it matter how often you do strength training, or uh, how long your your training sessions are, or uh, how much you vary them? Uh, all these different things you can. Uh, so that that's called feature engineering in data science. I think that's a very important aspect of data science because you're really capturing the data in all these different aspects, and then you you're trying to yeah to to use that as predictors to model the uh, the injury as a target. Um, and yeah, we saw that that there's uh, definitely some good results there, and also the jumping uh, is very important in this group, which of course makes sense. But uh, we're we're really providing thresholds also for for the coach. So for instance, there was one, uh, and this is personalized analysis. So we're looking at a, at an NS1 basis. Uh, so we have one player who has I don't know 150 uh, days of, of training and also days of injury monitoring. And then you can can actually model for this specific person what do you find? And actually, there was one guy who did a lot of strength training, and they already know that okay, when he does uh, some some uh, training with his back, uh, there is there is a limit. If you go above it, then he's out for a little bit. Uh, but they they never know like what is this threshold? And, and the machine learning that that we uh, applied actually said, oh, this is this amount of kilograms. Um, of course, there's some uncertainty there, but they said, "Hey, this is this is really what we can, what we recognize." And also, this this providing this value gives us a lot of value to to steer the training afterwards. So, uh, yeah, that is that is an example of what we do, and and we do similar analyses in, in, in basketball, for instance, but also in uh, in cycling and, and speed skating. There's a lot of, lot of things going on there, especially with all the the power. Uh, meters that, that it's so easy to collect this data but then of course yeah how do you get the the value out of that that's where it uh, becomes important and, and combining data sources so not only power but also heart rate internal external uh, training loads how does that relate to performance i think that is uh, a lot of things that we're doing uh, at the moment um yeah yeah and uh yeah oh, sorry yeah Ask. <laughs> in in cycling or speed skating, the endurance sports mentioned here, uh, do you already have any examples where you have found something that is really valuable and and actionable and useful? Uh, do, do you have any examples of that, or is it work in progress still? Um, there is some work in progress. There is also in, in cyclists we did, uh, and I, I wanted to mention that. So this is uh, 
uh, a good bridge in that sense. Uh, we also did some unsupervised machine learning, and that is a little bit different, but it's yeah, it's clustering. So actually, you, you're providing a data set and say, okay, uh, look at all the relationships that are in the data set to, to form people who are very similar, in a sense. Um, and there you could, we used anthropometry uh, to, to look at, at, uh, at the, 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 the people there. And there you could see that there's definitely different uh, types of cyclists, in a sense. And this is not, uh, this is actually cross disciplines as well. So actually, we had team pursuit, road cyclists, and, and track sprinters. Uh, the sprinters were completely different from the other two groups, which, of course, you would imagine. They are much more bulky and much, uh, yeah, much more uh, mesomorph if you're into the somatotypes. Um, but the other two, that, that, that actually was a mix of, of, of team pursuit and road cyclists. And, of course, you can use these types of, of clusters to, to look further and see, okay, what is their performance? But also, can we train them differently? So kind of using the... The, the physique and, and physiology of these people to, to be more specific in your, your training steering as well. So, so that is also something that, that is already out there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting, and and it's uh, it's good that you mentioned the that being unsupervised machine learning. I think that's something that uh, is quite an important thing for people to understand, not just in endurance sports, but in anything, because machine learning is becoming such a big part of of uh, society these days. That I mean, depending on what kind of machine learning we're talking about, it it might look very different, because in some cases you have a lot of assumptions or constraints or models selected and created by by the 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 programmers or the people behind the model and then while you have the all the fancy machine learning going on there you still have something that a human person selected in the background so so and that can be a good thing of course if you know a lot about the the subject matter but it can also be you're still relying on some knowledge or some assumptions of a human being in certain cases in the supervised machine learning or or different depending on what what model you're working with so 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 all that to say that uh, yeah there there they come <laughs> machine learning comes in many different um sizes and shapes if you if you will definitely uh, so so yeah, yeah there's a lot of uh, variety there yeah definitely <laughs> yeah yeah um where do you see data science and machine learning going in the next few years within endurance sports specifically? Yeah, I think it it just started in a sense. Uh, so there's there's yeah, it's it's really at the the frontiers, I must say, of uh, of combining these types of uh, of analyses, and it's also a different yeah different perspective. Like we're really used to these well controlled, hypothesis driven experiments, and actually applying data science is is, is maybe completely different. You're, you're looking back to data that's been tracked very uh, well, particularly in the past, but then trying to learn more or new insights from that. So I think it also has, has a shift in that sense, and that takes time uh, for people to adopt that. Uh, so I think there's plenty to uh, to go on in a sense. And of course, there's, there's also so much about uh, doing computer vision, uh, doing image analysis, um, so I know in Antwerp they're doing a lot with with sprinting uh, towards the finish line in in cycling uh, the, the last bits. Like how does that work with the trains that are being formed and they they use all these analysis from cameras uh, that they. Uh, so that is something completely different. How you can also apply uh, data science. So I think there's so many ways, uh, so many application uh, that you can uh, can actually do. So I think there's much more to to come in a sense. But the the 
the important thing there is that you you want to have people who know the domain, uh, know what problems are uh, are there out there, uh, and people who know a lot of data science and and definitely work in teams in that sense to uh, yeah to solve to solve questions with new tools. Uh, if you if you would uh, summarize it, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, and then uh, go moving on from that topic. Uh, can you give three pieces of advice about anything related to endurance sports for amateurs, uh, amateur endurance athletes that want to improve their performance? Sure. Yeah, I think the very important thing is is monitor your your progress, uh, keep track of what you do, and not only uh, what you do in terms of yeah how fast you you do your your runs or your cycling bouts or, or your swims, but also. Uh, uh, yeah, how hard uh, did you perceive him? So, for instance, the the Yakori study shows that with just a simple measure of saying, "Okay, my exercise bout was this difficult or this strenuous," that gives so much information already. So, tracking that uh, is 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 very important and gives you the opportunity to maybe if you have a new question or a new way of looking at your data, you can always go back two years or, or more if you have tracked that data. So, I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, so I would definitely suggest uh, to do that. Um, yeah, based on what we saw in the in the mini review, I, I would say focus on the extra, uh, the oxygen supply capacity. I think there's a lot of potential uh, there, uh, underlying the improvements in, uh, in performance. And also, uh, and can you and can and can you repeat there? So in terms of training advice, how what type of training would would you recommend uh, primarily to to work on that oxygen supply capacity? Yeah, so definitely do some high intensity training, uh, maybe even in hypoxia, so some altitude camps if you can. Uh, but of course, also try to uh, to not do too much of them because you have the negative uh, effects on the oxidative capacity. Um, so yeah, that yeah, that is uh, what I would suggest. And in in similar lines, uh, yeah, vary your your uh, your workouts, and not only to to achieve this polarized training, uh, which may be helpful, but also in terms of motivation. Like try to really find the workouts that that you you like to do. Uh, also, of course, do some that you maybe don't like, but but really uh, adopt uh, to 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 preference and vary vary what you do. That's really helpful for. Uh, adapting yeah great and uh what's one thing that you are currently learning about or are fascinated by and why yeah what i'm very fascinated by is uh is this curve i was talking to you about so so in mm. in nature it it seems that it's very tightly regulated either you go towards the explosive side the sprint side with the large fibers or you go to the oxidative capacity uh, to, to the endurance side. So actually, that says you cannot combine both. But still, there are some athletes who are able to to find a way to do it. And I'm really curious to find out, like, how do they do this? And uh, in, in previous work, we saw that bioglobin and capillarization are very important targets there. But there, there are more. And, uh, uh, yeah, there's definitely work coming out uh, looking into that as well. So, uh, yeah. That's very fascinating, yeah. at least uh, for me. <laughs> oh, I, I think so. And uh, I, I think if I remember correctly, you have a, that is another figure in your paper. So yeah. if listeners don't quite know what, what, or what to see, what, what that curve looks like, then again, go and look at the paper. It's there. Yeah. 
And uh, let's move on to the rapid fire question. So take just one sentence to answer uh, each of these. Yeah. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource? Uh, it's faster by Michael Hutchinson. Yeah. 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 A good uh, cycling, cycling related book there. Yeah. And uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Yeah, really tracking my uh, my trainings and and also well beings at the same time. Uh, and always go, can I can go back to that and learn more about personal events or, or things that I did. Uh, so that's definitely uh, yeah something a habit that I uh, still do every day uh, with only two minutes of work. So yeah, great. And uh, finally, who's somebody you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, that's uh, yeah definitely Jak Ori. Uh, seeing how he approaches science and also putting it into practice, uh, and and really being keen on 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 a proper data collection. Uh, that's that's something that uh, yeah I really admire and also try to implement in my own uh, field of work. Excellent. And uh, finally, where can listeners follow you and and your work? Um, yeah, I, you can find me on Twitter. So, uh, Stefan uh, Fidi Swart. Um, there you can find me also. I'm on ResearchGate. And uh, I also have my own website, com, which you can uh, visit. So, uh, either one of those or just uh, contact me uh, via email. That's also good. Yeah, yeah. For for the the science uh, geeks out there, you have a pretty cool cool tool on your website. I, I found with, which aggregates all of the the sports science papers from the recent week. So so that's uh, that's one to yeah have a play around with. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Stefan. It's been a really uh, nice chat with you. I learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Dr. Van der Swart. As usual, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll link to all of Stefan's profiles and website as well as his uh, paper, Under the Hood, Skeletal Muscle Determinants of Endurance Performance. Uh, this one is available as full text, uh, open access, so everybody can have a look at it and read it in full if you want to. In addition, remember that uh, on scientifictriathlon.com, you can go to the podcast page and you can check the different tabs of the in the episode archives and, for example, filter for science and physiology episodes like this one. And then you can find similar episodes that uh, you might be interested in listening to if you haven't listened to all of the episodes on the podcast. Uh, we are up to quite a few now. So, so that might be something that I just want to mention every once in a while so that you're aware that you can find previous episodes that you might be interested in in that way on the website. I also want to remind you we do have a few slots available still on the training camp in Mallorca in 2022. It will be at the end of March to early April. You can find all the details on the website or you can just email me. What I think is really unique about our camp is that the success criteria for us is not just that you will leave the camp a fitter athlete, but that you will leave uh, the camp a much smarter and much more educated athlete, as we will make sure that we uh, talk with everybody in detail and uh, help you with your specific training questions. We will have workshops and seminars and the like, so you will really learn a lot through that week uh, together with all of us scientific triathlon coaches and other coaches as well. Uh, so that will be a really, really good week of training and learning. I hope to, to see you there on Mallorca in 2022. Check it out on scientifictriathlon.com. 
Next Monday, we have an episode on if and how you should take a season break. We will feature coaches Philip Seip, Helle Fredriksen, and Emma Carney. Uh, so that will be another one where I interview several coaches to get uh, differences in opinions and nuances of opinions. So I hope that you will enjoy that. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Sen8. Use the Sen8 Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, and increase your swim stimulus frequency even when you can't go to the pool or open water. Got 20%, get 20% off the Senate Swim Trainer with a promo code that you can get on senatesweamtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft life.